0: We're continuing our conversation with Vanessa Arsason, Professor of Religious Studies in the Liberal and Creative Arts Department of Marianopolis College, Canada, and author of Yashodara and the Buddha. In part two of this episode, we delve into a narrative about Yashodara's extraordinary, expansive life and why her story feels deeply human and relatable today. Take a listen. In keeping with the tradition of retelling the story, you are relying on all these different sources that are kind of putting their own spin on the narrative. And I'm wondering when you were making, when you were sitting down to write this, how did you decide how to describe Yashadara's character? I mean, how did you capture her personality if you had to depend on all of these different sources that were kind of, I don't know, capturing her from a different angle? Well,
1: so first of all, it's fiction. Second of all, it's based on when somebody 2,000 years ago was writing the story of the Buddha and bringing her into the conversation. They were using the resources that they had available based on the stories they heard, right? The unusual position that contemporary academics have is that we have access to way more material than we've ever had because we have texts from all over the world now accessible right on our laps, which wouldn't have been the case before. So I've read stuff from Nepal to China to Tibet, right? But most of the stuff I've read is from all over the world. We have so many different versions of these stories. And Yashodara shows up in these stories differently in each one. So I had to kind of decide which story I could connect to as a writer, right? And so that was a decision I had to make as a result of all of this reading. And I kept going back to this notion that the two of them had, if they went lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, she has to be his equal on some level, or at least she has to be great. If he is a great being, she must be a powerful being too, because otherwise somebody else would have been his wife. And so I had these kind of logical arguments that I was making in my head to get me to who I thought she was, right? And what's interesting is if we fast forward her story when they finally do get married so they grow up in their worlds and eventually get married obviously the most famous part of her story is he's married to her and you think they're going to be living happily ever after in their in their palace in their kingdom but he wants to become the buddha he's not made to live the house life and so he eventually feels drawn to the contemplative life and one day while she's left in the palace, he goes out. Again, details are different depending on which text you read, but he goes out and he gets his very famous moment of seeing the four sights. And the four sights are when he sees old age, sickness, and death, and then renunciation. And when he sees these sights, when he sees suffering, his world is turned upside down. And he realizes he needs to figure this out that he never really engaged seriously with suffering before. And he can't just go and live in the palace and just have a light life. He needs to think about this. He needs to figure out how to solve the question of suffering. And while he's having that experience, she's having a kind of parallel experience because while he's out, she's in the palace giving birth to their son. And so she's in the throes of labor, suffering, facing sickness and death, which is what it could have easily been, not old age, but certainly sickness and death. And she's having her body ripped apart while he's thinking about it. And so the two of them are on these kind of parallel trajectories again. And when he comes home and she has given birth, he decides he's going to leave. And so when her experience of that direct suffering has come to an end and she falls asleep, he's thinking, I'm out of here. And he's going to Take off and gallop off into the sunset to become the Buddha. So he leaves. There's this wonderful moment that I just have to tell because to me it is the most pained moment of the story is that he's deciding to leave. But just before he goes, he goes to her room and she's lying in bed and she's asleep with her newborn son tucked into her arms. And according to one of the Pali commentaries, he stands on the threshold of the room and he looks at her. And he thinks, if I touch my son, which he obviously wants to do, she will wake up and then I won't be able to go. It's a really beautiful moment that to me, the way I read this line, is that it speaks to his longing for her and his fear that if she looks into his eyes, he'll get trapped. He won't be able to escape and become the Buddha. And so he decides not to touch his son and he turns around and he walks out and that's how he leaves. And the next morning, and this gets back to your question of like, you know, her character. This is the moment when she wakes up the next morning that is kind of like her most famous moments in the Buddhist story is that he leaves and she wakes up to an empty palace and he's gone and it's her beloved, right? And he, she calls him her beloved and they spent lifetimes together and here she is waking up and he's gone. And her response to discovering that he's gone is where we see her character come out. And all these different sources that I had been reading over the years take this moment, like this is the moment, this is her kind of great moment on the stage, and they see her differently. But in all of them, she's so powerful, right? Her emotions are strong, and they're clear, and she's upset, and she's hurt, and she's so fully, deeply human. And she voices it. She doesn't shut herself in. She doesn't just kind of bow her head and accept whatever. She responds. And so in some texts, her eyes turn red with fury and she attacks, you know, how could all of you allow this to happen, right? There's one of my favorite texts, the Buddha Charita, which is one of our earliest stories of the Buddha. He has her like yelling at everyone and she goes to see the chariot driver who was the one who helped him escape. And she says, how could you do this to me? How could you take him away from me? And then she says to him, like she wags her finger at him and she says, didn't you tell him about me? Why didn't you remind him about his wife and his responsibilities? Why didn't you tell him about me, right? This is not some like wallflower that's kind of just hides in the corner, goes, okay, I guess he's gone now. She just, she charges through the palace and she says, he's supposed to be here. He's supposed to be with me, right? And so it's not she has a voice and she has things to say. And these early writers let her say it. They didn't shrink and they didn't think it was inappropriate to have a woman yelling. They had her in all her glory, right? And in other texts, she falls, you know, she collapses and she sobs and she thinks, how can I live without my beloved husband, right? And so you have this sense of loss. And in that 20th century text that I told you about, the Nepali one, it's so romantic and it's so beautiful. She, She wakes up. And she feels pain on her right side. And she says, something that's supposed to be there isn't there anymore, right? And the male side is the right side and the left is the female side. And so it's a sense that they were literally tied together and that he has ripped himself apart. She feels the pain on the right side. She's like, what's gone? And then she realizes, where's my husband? And then she goes into the garden and she remembers all the places that they walk together and the places where they watch the swans on the lake. And she's just reliving all these very romantic, beautiful moments that she had spent with him. And now he's gone. And it's, how do you make sense of that? And so she lives loss in a really powerful, voiced way. She is not unvoiced, right? And what I find very moving is that most of these writers of this literature were male. And they stopped the Buddha story to take a moment to let themselves speak her voice and for her to express the pain of what it is to say goodbye to him. And not even to say goodbye, she didn't get to say goodbye, but to lose him. And so it speaks to how great he was because it broke her heart so badly. It speaks to their relationship. It speaks also to her character. And so I had this really strong, passionate woman in my mind that had to be the character that was Yashodra, Because if she was a wallflower, I would have told the story very differently. But the literature really does present her as strong and that when she has something to say, she says it. And then, of course, the end of the story, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but this really is the end of the story, is that eventually she will come to terms with this. She will figure out how to process the loss. And eventually she will decide to become a nun and to try to achieve spiritual freedom the way he has and join him, right? And so that 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 relationship comes back. So she does every step and she doesn't skip any steps. And one of those steps is to just be enraged or to be sobbing, to feel the loss. So this is the character that I have been reading and it had to be the character that I created. And I have her have that voice right through her life, not just when she loses him, but that she had something to say at each stage and she said it.
0: What I find so remarkable about this is just how, how uniquely human it sounds. And it is to me such a different depiction and relationship, depiction of and relationship to the divine, mm-hmm. that these stories that are being received, I mean, you're telling of it, but also just centuries tradition of telling this story it's being received as a sacred text and it just it makes me think about just the practice of buddhism at large and what it actually does to a person to think of the divine as being among you as be having these human reactions as reacting and yelling when your lover your partner your your life leaves right i mean how does that change how you relate to the world around you if the sacred walk among you and have these reactions and these experiences. Well, so
1: she's not divine, right? So we do need to like, he is. If, if we would ever use the term divine in Buddhism, he is as close to that term as we would get. But he certainly walks and is married to her and has a relationship with her, certainly. Yes.
0: Right. I am mostly, I'm referring to him, oh, but also just these, these stories that are sort of like I think, fundamental to the story and formation of the Buddha. But just like even thinking of him as a person practicing these or having these like human decisions to make and her human reaction to it, I think it's just it's it just makes me think about how if this is being received as a sacred story, even if she herself is not right. uh, divine, just that people's relationship to the world around them must be so different. But see, in the that's world. where
1: it's a really interesting point Christianity has a very similar structure in that this unknowable God up in the sky has become human and has relationship, right? And so you have kind of the same pattern of this closeness and this intimacy to something tremendous in Christianity and in Buddhism is that the character of the Buddha during his lifetime in these stories is, as you're saying, walking around and having relationships and causing hardship right? Because that's what it is to be human, just as Jesus did, right? And when I think about parallels, I think so often about the first time I saw La Pieta from Michelangelo, actually the only time, Uh, it was a long time ago. And Michelangelo's Pieta is this beautiful big statue of Mary holding Jesus after he's been taken off the cross. And it's in the Vatican. And when I saw it, Twenty-five years ago, or something, at the time there was no glass in front of it. It was just a rope, and for some reason, the day I went to the Vatican, there was very few people there, and there was one guard, and he kind of didn't care, (laughs) and so he just let me kind of sit right next to La Pietà, which you can't do anymore. And so I sat at its feet, and I I sat there for like an hour. I was in such awe of this masterpiece because if you ever see an image, if you ever get to see it or see a photograph of it online. Her face, Mary's face as she holds her son, it's not God anymore. She's holding her son who has died and her face is so gentle and so soft and you sense that suffering and that intimacy of what this is the challenge of bringing the divine to earth, right? So even if he is God, it doesn't kind of matter in that moment because what he was is her son and it must've broken her heart. And so in some ways I felt often La Pieta in my imagination that in the same way that Michelangelo is not the only one to have depicted this moment, obviously it's a very famous moment, but I've thought about that image so many times of this moment when the artist holds on to that sense of loss and shares it with the audience, which is what I was trying to do with this book as fiction is yes, at the end of the day, he's the Buddha and transcends everything and she becomes an awakened being and she transcends everything. But there's this moment, right? When she wakes up the next day and she experiences such loss and that moment, I'm not the first to notice it, right? So many writers noticed it and took the time to articulate this loss, right? This intimacy with somebody so, extraordinary and the sense of loss that comes with losing them. And it's such an important moment to touch because it touches us because we know what loss is, right? I mean, we can, we can have big stories of magnificence and amazingness and everything else, right? Whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, doesn't matter. But what we really tend to know in the day-to-day is loss. And she has that moment where her most beloved, has left her without saying goodbye. And maybe for good reason and in the big cosmic scheme of things, she doesn't care about that in that moment. Just as Mary doesn't care that her son really was God because in that moment, she's looking at her son and his death. And it is in the texts, just as that moment is alluded to in the New Testament. But artists take the moment to expand it, to comment, to show it to us and say, this is This is the human experience too. This is the relationship. And we gravitate to those stories because we understand them.
0: Do you feel that there's a particular reason why today we would resonate with Yashodara's story of loss? Or is it the same reason why people resonated with it a century ago?
1: I think if you're human, you're dealing with loss. I think, this is going to sound really dark, but I do think, certainly as I'm getting older, that life is kind of a long road to loss. Like it's when you're young, you're kind of hoarding and accumulating experiences. And as you get older, you start to lose those experiences and you lose your faculties. I mean, I'm not at that point yet, but (laughs) I think I, I watch some of the elderly in my family and they lose pieces of themselves. They watch their best friends die, their family members, people who are younger than them die until eventually you're the only one left and you're dying. Like I think... I think we're on this road to loss. We don't feel it when we're young, but I think that's what we're doing. And I think that's always been our story. And I think maybe though, right now in this immediate moment with the pandemic, we might understand it a bit better. Cause I think when we're young, we turn away from it. We don't want to know, we don't want to engage it. We distract ourselves, it's normal, but in the last year, I think we have experienced, and it's been said so many times, but it's still true, a collective experience of loss that has been quite profound and has shaken all of us and shaken us collectively as much as individually. And of course, some of us has gone through the pandemic fine. Many people haven't. And we've experienced a collective anxiety that we haven't known in a very, very long time since the Second World War, I think. So I think engaging with her story of loss We might be more open to it because we know it better. Buddhism has this great insight in the story, right? The king, Buddha's father, a very famous part of his narrative, he wants his son to be a king, but the astrologers warn him when he's born, they say, you know, your son might become a great king, but there's a really good chance, according to his astrological chart, that he's going to become a religious teacher. And that's a disaster for a king. (laughs) You don't want your kid to grow up being like some contemplative living in a cave. So for him, this is the worst thing that could happen. And so he decides, and it's it's a moment in his life story that I think we haven't appreciated sufficiently, is that he decides that to make sure his son becomes a king and not a religious teacher, he's going to block off, he's gonna kind of like isolate and create a bubble for his son so that his son never sees suffering. Because he figures out, this is the part that I think we haven't appreciated, is that the king on his own figured out that the thing that makes people spiritual or religious or contemplative or philosophical, whichever term we feel like using, what makes us that way is an engagement with suffering, engagement with loss. And so if he never experiences loss, he'll never turn his attention to the contemplative life and he'll become a king. He'll be satisfied with the material world right? And so this is how the Buddha is raised, or the one who will become the Buddha is raised. I think that's such a profound insight. And I think this, this last year, we've had our material comfort really challenged. For some of us, it's been completely devastated. In some countries right now, it's being devastated on a massive scale. And so we are relating to loss in ways that maybe we weren't open to before. But whether we're open to it or not, it's still going to happen. It's kind of like my dark doomsday statement.
0: No, I mean, God, you're talking to somebody <laughs> who, I don't know, you can't like be a millennial and not be like a little nihilistic, to be honest. I know. I feel that way about the pandemic, but also just climate as somebody change. who grew up during climate extinction, like we're like living through an extinction event. So I, I do think that like as a young person, we understand loss on a, on a level that maybe isn't, I don't know. Natural or doesn't resonate with like previous generations? I think
1: that's true. I mean, I think it's natural. I think other generations will have experienced, like, I often think about what it would have been like to go through those two world wars and like you must have felt like there's never any hope, right? It was just one disaster after another and it was global. It must have been devastating emotionally and physically and emotionally everything. But I think my generation, which is older than yours, we didn't experience the kind, you know, we were afraid of nuclear war. That was a big issue for us. But I think your generation is certainly growing up with an an awareness of the fragility of life that we didn't have as much. And that makes you maybe more sensitive to things that we might have just walked right past as we were still dreaming of getting Ferraris. I think that dream's kind of over. (laughs) I think we have organize ourselves differently now and teach the next generation to want different things. And that is to take care of ourselves.
0: To take care of ourselves and also comfort ourselves and validate our own existence with storytelling. I think that's really, really important. And why on a religious level, but also, yeah, on a social, psychological level, receiving these kinds of stories is really important, particularly stories about women that, yeah, that we haven't heard before. I don't know. There's something very radical about being able to tell that story and have it received in a certain way.
1: We're we're remembering things that we'd forgotten and seeing them differently and engaging with them anew. And that is, it awakens something in us that needs to be awakened. When you cut out 50% of the human population, you lose 50% of the human experience. Like I didn't, write this book to be on trend. I hadn't thought of it uh, until after it came out and people said, oh, you're on trend. <laughs> I thought, oh, but it wasn't the point. It was really just, I wanted to know this voice, but the fact that it is a trend now and that we're trying to call upon these voices, I think is very exciting because we're like bringing back from the, from the sleep, not the dead, but bringing back from, a, from a, a long sleep voices that need to participate and it changes us to hear those voices and to think through the past gives us more of a possibility to imagine the future and to feel connected, right? I think this, we started with this discussion of like multi-life storytelling. I think it really changes things to think in a much broader spectrum like that. So that a story from 2,500 years ago, regardless of whether or not it's historically true, just pulling that story and, and like making it part of the blanket that we cover ourselves with makes us feel connected to the past, which gives us an opportunity to also imagine being connected to the future. And as you said, right at the beginning of like getting past the narcissism of the immediate, that allows us to also plan for the future. If we're just with the immediate, we destroy the world as we have done and dream of Ferraris. It it was ridiculous, right? The 80s were ridiculous for that. We weren't the only ones to do it, but we didn't do a good job. We need to... Stretch our imaginations far into the past and stretch ourselves far into the future and make that whole lineage important. And then we will be able to plan and we will learn from the past and we can act in the world in a different way. Just knowing the immediate is not healthy. There's a one, I don't remember, I think it's the Cree, but I'm not sure. There's a somebody told me this a long time ago of a First Nation, I think the Cree, who say that every decision you make has to be taken with seven generations into consideration. So when you make a decision, you have to think of the set three generations before you, three generations ahead of you and the generation you're living now. If we made decisions like that and told stories like that, I think we would be very different in the world.
0: Right. Because if you had an awareness of lineage, you would realize that all of the decision-making you have in your life doesn't just affect you, that there are consequences to all of your actions and speaking. We
1: feel responsible.
0: Yeah. We wouldn't destroy the planet the way that we are. If we felt a responsibility to other people living on this world and the people who came before us and the people who are coming after us. But because we're talking so much about storytelling and it's its radical power to connect us. I was wondering if you could actually read an excerpt from from your book to better get a sense of the kind of storytelling that you're trying to embody.
1: I can. I'll read a bit of the prologue. The story begins kind of like the way Indian storytelling goes in circles. So my book does that a little bit. So we talked about Yashodra's life with the Buddha and that they get married and then he leaves her and he goes off to become the Buddha. He eventually comes back once he's achieved awakening. And she has raised her son by herself, but in the palace. Her son is about seven or eight years old. And to make a long story short, when he returns to see his father and to see his community and to give teachings, it's the first time he meets his son, really. And his son asks him for his inheritance. It's a very famous moment in the Buddha's life story. And the Buddha's answer is, I'll give you the teachings, because that's the only inheritance that he has to offer because he's given up the material world. And so with that, he takes his son back with him to the forest. And so this is a really interesting moment where he's now going to pass down to his son what he's learned. But what it does for Yashodhara is that now she's lost her son too. And so her experience of loss doesn't end with him leaving her. She's going to lose now her son. Right, and so she's going to find herself alone in a palace with her in laws, and not even her son anymore. And so, to me, this is just the hardest part of her story. After accepting that her husband leaves, now she loses her son. She really goes to the bottom of her experience, and then she will start to climb back. And so, the book opens with the scene that none of the texts give us, and that is her goodbye to her son. Right, and this was something that really struck me: is that all the texts will agree that. The son goes with his father to the forest, but they never tell us what it was like for her to say goodbye. So this to me is a missing scene in the literature. And so I wrote it based on my own imagination because I had no other text to build this on. So I'll read you a little bit about that. And so it, it begins with her in her room with her maidservant sobbing and just not wanting to let go of her son. But her, her maidservant says, you have to do this your son needs you and your son is also ready to move on because in ancient India, around six, seven, eight, he would have been ready to get his education. And so I, the only way I can understand this decision is that it's him getting his education, leaving his mother's breast to go forward into the world of men. And so she eventually kind of pulls herself together and agrees it's time to be strong and not to fall apart. And she steps out of her room and she goes downstairs to see her son. I could see bodies milling around in the courtyard ahead, men dressed in orange rags moving silently, ochre-colored shadows. I adjusted my braid one more time, smoothed out my white wrap, tightened my sash, and crossed the great hall to the courtyard with one objective in mind, to find my son. He was sitting by himself by the edge of the lotus pool. How are you, darling? I asked as I sat down. He didn't look up. His fingers were trailing through the water in between the flowers. A flock of blackbirds tore through the darkening sky, chasing the moon like lost souls. Sweetheart, no response. Rahula, I whispered as I placed my hand on the softness of his little neck. Please look at me. He trailed his fingers a little while longer, making pathways through the water. A frog watched him from the safety of a lotus leaf. Eventually he looked up. I placed a lock of hair behind his ear, as I'd done so many times before. How are you feeling, sweetheart, I asked, as I attempted to put those thoughts aside. I'm all right, he shrugged. Are you ready? I guess so. He turned towards the water again. Sweetheart, it's okay to feel a bit scared right now. You don't have to be so brave. He looked up at me. You know, I added, I'm scared too at these words all of his restraint melted and he threw himself into my arms oh mother i'm so scared i don't want to go he sobbed against my neck he was trembling just as i had been a moment earlier every fiber in my being wanted to scoop him up and run away run from the men in orange robes who were forcing us into this separation run from the world that dictated such realities and called them wisdom my baby was crying and i wanted to make his tears go away I inhaled the sweet smell of him. I would have renounced the entire world to be able to hold on to him longer, but I would not renounce his future just to satisfy my desires. Slowly, ever so carefully, I pulled us apart. My most beautiful sweetheart, I whispered, I'm so sad. I can't imagine living without you. I wiped away the tears that were dripping down my own cheeks, but I won't hold you back. It's time for you to find your life. But I want to be with you, he exclaimed. I know. I want that too, but you'll be with your father. He'll take good care of you. He looked past me to where the men were, his father sitting straight and elegant at the center. But I don't even know him, he objected. You will learn to know him. Well, what if he doesn't like me? That, my darling, is one thing I know you don't have to worry about, I said with a confident smile. You're impossible not to love my beautiful Rahula. Your father is a good man. You'll see. He wiped his tears, which I knew was a good sign. But what if I never see you again, mother? He asked. I believe we will see each other again, my darling. But if anything happens, I stumbled against the words, but then I caught myself. Well, then I'll see you in the next life. We will never be lost to each other, Rahula. Don't ever forget that. Men in orange robes approached. Are you ready? asked one of them. Rahula searched my face, looking for permission. He is ready, I answered for him.